Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi everyone, this is Barb Crowley and we're back with Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today, we are going to talk about near-death experiences and consciousness outside of our five senses with psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Grayson, the world's leading expert on near-death experiences, who is here to discuss his new book, After. And after, Dr. Grayson compiles and distills decades of research gathered from near-death experiences as reported to him by people who died and came back to tell their stories of what they saw on the other side, how their lives changed, and what this means for the rest of us. These common phenomenon can no longer be explained away or swept under the rug and is now entering the legitimate world of scientific research, which I'm real happy about. Dr. Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was a co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. His award-winning research led him to become a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, which, by the way, is the highest award you can be given by the American Psychiatric Association. So that's quite an accomplishment and achievement. Um, he, Dr. Grayson was also invited by the Dalai Lama to participate in a dialogue between Western scientists and Buddhist monks in India. So welcome, Dr. Grayson. Thanks so much for being here and for um, bringing all your research and insights into um, near-death experience. Now, what, with all of your background and, and um, achievements, to put all of that on the line, which you can be doing going into the AMA and to the uh, Psychiatric Association, what brought you to research near-death experiences? Well, Barbie, it was, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm delighted to talk to you today. Um, I was raised in a scientific household um, where we were taught that, you know, you, you judge everything by the evidence, not by your beliefs. Uh, my father was a chemist. He knew about the physical world, and that was all he knew about, so that's what we were taught. We never thought about anything spiritual or religious. It just wasn't part of our world. So I went through um, high school and college and medical school with that materialistic mindset that the physical world was all there is. And then when you die, that's the end. And that was fine. That's just the way life was. And then shortly after I started my psychiatric training and a few weeks into it, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. When I went down to see her, she was unconscious. I could not arouse her. But her roommate, who had brought her in, was waiting to see me down at the other end of the hall. So I went down to talk to the roommate. I learned about uh, what was going on in the patient's life, what she might have taken. We talked for about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and then I went back to see the patient. 
and she was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And when I saw her the next morning, uh, she was barely able to open her eyes. She was very sleepy still. I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of stunned me because I, I couldn't imagine how she could have known who I was. Um, so I said, I thought you were unconscious when I talked to you last night. And then she said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, I didn't know what to say about that. That, that made no sense to me at all. The only way she'd have, she could have done that is she, she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. How can you leave it? <laughs> well, she saw me fumbling around there. And, and, and finally, she said, um, she told me about what, what I had asked the roommate about, what the roommate had said to us, what we were wearing, where we were sitting. And she had made no mistakes at all. She knew what was going on down the hall. That just blew me away. I couldn't understand how, she, how this could happen. But I had a job to do there. I couldn't deal with my own confusion. I was having to deal with hers. So I focused again on her, on her suicidal thoughts and so forth, and then tried to put my thoughts in the, in the background. Over the next few days, as I tried to reflect on this, I thought, this just can't be. This doesn't fit my worldview. Somebody had to be playing a trick on me. Maybe the nurses were playing a trick on me. I didn't know. <laughs> so I kind, of, I kind of pushed in the back of my mind until about five years later, Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experiences and described what they were like. And that was the first inkling I had that what this patient had told me years earlier was not just one isolated event, but was part of a huge phenomenon that was going on around the world. I still couldn't understand it, but I've been trained as a scientist, which means you don't run away from things you don't understand. It means you go towards them. So I started collecting data. I started collecting other cases of near-death experiences, trying to understand them. And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand them. I'm sure you're going to know on the other side. Eventually, we'll all know. Um, how is it for a scientist to go into the world of mystery? I feel like I've lived in the world of mystery. Right, And, and right. can't understand how a scientist can just stay without the mystery. First, what a dry life that is. <laughs> well. But also... Um, the something like that that comes to you and you can't explain it away. Right. You must get to the point where if you look at it, it's almost like your head can explode, I would think. Exactly. When, yeah. When you don't have that touchstone behind you to go right. to. Right. Right. Yeah. It's got to well, be me, pretty tough. Let me say first that the, uh, the scientific materialistic mind view did not feel like a dry world to me when I was doing that. It felt very reassuring and, and enriching. And it gave you the chance of being able to understand everything if you believe that. Right. And being confronted with a mystery means you can't understand things, which is very frightening for a scientist. I would think, yeah. And but I'm was, in the world of mystery. So exactly. You know, exactly. How could you think you could know everything? <laughs> right, right. So, but it's, yeah. not, it's not scientific to ignore things that are going on all around you. Um, that's, that's, that's a belief. That's faith. That's not science. Science is actually right. exploring things that you don't understand. Right. So when I faced these quote mysteries, I knew I had to try to understand them. If I wanted to have so many, any in integrity as a scientist. How was that accepted though? Because so many of your colleagues would go the other way, would just right. push it away and walk away. And, and you put quite a distinct 
distinguished career on the line and following right. your curiosity, really. Right. Well, I had some challenges in that. And, and many of my mentors told me, don't dare do this. Don't do that. You throw away your career. And I thought about that and thought, that just doesn't seem honest to right. ignore these things. So I, I you know, did some soul searching and decided this is where I have to go. But it took a tremendous amount of courage, I would think, to step out well, and follow it, your but, own heart with it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, ha- I had some help. There, was, there were um, other people who were going in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, doctors, like anybody else, um, some thought this was the most fascinating stuff in the world, and some people were embarrassed by it and wished I would just go away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, but attitudes <laughs> actually have changed over the last 50 years. When we first started talking about these things in the 1980s, nobody knew what we were talking about, mm-hmm. and they just couldn't believe it. And now it's become so commonplace. Everyone knows they're there, and yeah. doctors understand that they are happening to a lot of their patients. And furthermore, they have profound effects on their patients that affect their health care. So they realize they better learn about these things in order to give their, give their patients better care. So they, still, they want to learn about them now. They still don't have any idea about what causes them, what their ultimate meaning is, but they accept that they happen to their patients and that they're important events. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me wants to jump right to the what uh, happens in your brain, but let's go back. Let's talk about what I think should be evidence of yeah. this is like where Holly had the ability to see you in the other room. Yes. And, and this to me is evidence that um, you have another story about a woman who, I'll leave it to you. So I read you. And that to me is evidence that they were right, right. more aware than we are. <laughs> right, right. This is actually something that was, uh, it happened with, with Kim Clark Sharp, who was a social worker at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. And a patient was brought in um, unconscious with a, with a heart attack, with a cardiac arrest, and admitted to the hospital. And when Kim came around to see her the next day as a social worker, when she was awake, she started talking to the patient about what it was like to have that cardiac arrest and be unconscious. And the patient told her that she actually was awake during that time when she seemed to be unconscious. And she had left her body and walked around and hovered above things. And she described a red tennis shoe on the ledge of a windowsill on the opposite side of the building of the hospital. Um, and she described what it was like. There was a scuff mark on the toe and the the uh, lace was under the heel, and she was insistent that this was really there. So Kim decided to go take a look. So she went from room to room, pressing her face against the window, trying to see what was in there, and she finally did find it in a room on the other side of the hospital. And she opened the window and retrieved the shoe, and it was just like the patient had said. And there's no way the patient could have known about this. She was unconscious when she came to the hospital and had never left her bed, and yet she knew about it in detail. That is amazing. I've read about um, operating rooms where they've put things on the ceilings and all of those things. Right, right. They say they've never, people coming back have never talked about what they painted on the ceiling or something. No, well, imagine yourself leaving your body for the first time in your life, and you're just stunned by that. Mm-hmm. You can look around for some strange things painted on the ceiling that you didn't know was there. I mean, right. it doesn't have any meaning for you. You're having your own experience. No right, time. right. <laughs> yeah, I would, but I've, I've, I talked to, I've talked to a number of people who left their bodies during operations and described for me things going on around the body, 
unusual things that the doctors and nurses were doing that they couldn't have predicted, and they were completely accurate. You, in your book, you have a story about the guy who was, yes. fla- I call it flapping. Or, he was, know. yes, yes. Yeah. This is a 55-year-old guy who was admitted to the hospital with severe chest pain, and he had emergency quadruple cardiac bypass surgery. And in the middle of the operation, he left his body and was hovering above it. And he saw his, his surgeon flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. And when the patient told me about this, I couldn't believe it. I'd been a doctor for 30 years at this time. I'd never seen or heard anything like this. So I assumed the patient was hallucinating. But he insisted it was true. So after he had uh, come out of the operation and told me about this, I got his permission to talk to the surgeon. And I asked the surgeon about this. And the surgeon admitted this is true. He developed this unusual habit he'd never seen anybody else do, where he would let his, his assistant start the operation while he got gowned and gloved with his sterile suit. And then he'd go into the operating room and watch them operate. And to make sure he wouldn't touch anything that wasn't sterile, he put his palms where he knew they wouldn't touch anything flat against his chest. And then he would point things out to the, to the uh, assistants with his elbow so he wouldn't touch anything with his fingers. <laughs> it looked just like the patient said. He was flapping his arms like he was trying to fly. Hmm. Now, there's no way the patient could have known about that. And yet he did. Yeah. So that is more evidence. Yes. Well, yes. By far more evidence. Yeah. Um, some of the stunning things, though, are people who have, and, and you talk about it in your book, one of um, the patients who's, nurse um, was taking the week off or right, right. You know, yeah. And yeah. I'll leave that to you to tell that. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people in a near death experience see deceased loved ones. Um, mm-hmm. And this is often dismissed by critics as, as wishful thinking and expectation. You know, you think you're going to die. So you imagine being reunited with loved ones. And that may explain some of these cases, but we have a lot of cases now of people who saw deceased individuals who were not known at the time to be dead. And in fact, we have a case going back to the first century. Pliny the Elder wrote about a case like this, well-documented. But this one you're referring to was a 25-year-old man who was admitted with pneumonia to the hospital. And he had repeated respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe. And he had one nurse who was working with him every day, who was about his age. And one day she told him she was going to be taking a long weekend off uh, so she would have, he would have other nurses substituting for her. So he said goodbye to her. She left. And then over the weekend, while she was away, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that event, he had a near-death experience where he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene. And then to his surprise, he saw this nurse, Anita, walking towards him. So he said to her, you know, you know, what are you doing here, Anita? And she said, you can't stay here. You need to go back. And I want you to find my parents and tell them that I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned around and walked away. Well, when he later woke up in his hospital bed again, he remembered that vividly. And he told her to the first, he's told the first nurse that walked into his room about this. She got very upset and left the room immediately. It turned out that his nurse had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents had come to town to surprise her with a red MGB for her birthday. She got excited about that, jumped in the car, took off for a ride, lost control of it, and smashed into a telephone pole, dying instantly, shortly before his near-death experience. There's no way he could have known or expected that she was going to die, let alone how she did. And yet, he knew about it in detail. 
It, it, that's amazing. There's a little bit of me that thinks, and she had the time to come and tell him. Yes. <laughs> With her own passing, she had the time to come and tell him, which is um, another thing that is so amazing how, and you talk a little bit about it in your book, yes. with the drop and with the ocean, we're both. Right, right, we're right. And and before we get into the common factors they all have, I want to talk about some things that um, people right before they die that mm-hmm. you've you've observed right. um, as they pass over, as they're about to pass over. Yeah. That they kind of already are passing over a little bit out of uh, body. I think you call it um, deathbed, really. Mm-hmm deathbed visions, but also out-of-body stuff with crisis apparitions. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Sure. sure. Deathbed visions are very similar to near-death experiences, but people then go on to die as a result of it. Um, Mm -hmm. But in their dying moments, before they they pass away, they often have visions, including of deceased loved ones coming to greet them or of um, God or someone like that. And they're able to tell people around the deathbed about these visions. And they're often dismissed as being hallucinations, and yet they sound very much like near-death experiences. Um, And they are very reassuring to the patient and often to the family around them as well. I think I shared with you that my background, my culture really is um, we, you know, as people were dying, we'd we'd do a death watch. We call it a death watch. And, And they would, as a person was getting ready to die, really within the last week or couple weeks, sometimes um, they would talk to us, and then mm-hmm. they talk to people on the other side. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and they were visiting with everybody in their whole life, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it was calming to us. It was nice, and it was calming to them as well. And they right. were so happy to see everybody mm-hmm. and to to catch up or to talk to them. So right. it was so I got to witness that close up, which was great. Um, what about the um, the crisis apparitions? Yeah, these are apparitions of of people um, who come to someone in the in the middle of a crisis, like a near death state, or sometimes just an accident, and they are still alive. But a, an image of them will appear before someone who's perceiving this, and sometimes they appear to more than one person, and they can all share that they've seen, seen the same things. Um, these are unusual, but they are reported. And often you can corroborate that that's the person seen was in a nearly fatal crisis at the time. So there is, so there is a lot going on out of body. Yes. It's is really what it comes down to. So we are communicating at a different consciousness level. Right. Right. Um, although, um, except for old wives' tales, <laughs> it's never really been studied, or it has been studied, but very long ago, and never uh, in a situation like is in yeah University of Virginia, the mm-hmm. uh, division of um, what is per- that perceptual called? studies? Perceptual studies, yeah. yes. Um, I want to bring us back a little bit to the near death experiences, though, and um. There was another one that, that you had where Julia was singing, mm. and, and I'll leave that to you to tell. Right. This is actually a, uh, a 19th century uh, account 
um, by Ellen R. Sedgwick, who was a, a famous uh, physicist who studied these, these things. And she had a story about um, a woman who, a wealthy woman in the rural area of England, um, who has some nieces come visit her uh, for a couple of weeks in the summer. And she wanted them to learn how to sing. So she hired a local girl who was a good singer to come teach them how to sing. And the girl spent um, a couple of weeks teaching them and they had a great time. And then um, the girls went back and, and it was actually the, the daughter of a, of a friend of hers who she hired to come teach these girls. Um, so later on, um, this girl actually had a, a, a successful singing career in London. So she left the area and went off to London to, to become a singer. Several years later, this wealthy woman was on her deathbed and she was talking to her attorney about her, her will. And all of a sudden she stops and looks up in the corner of the room and says, do you hear that? And she described a chorus of angels singing. And of course, the lawyer didn't hear anything. And she said, well, wait, wait, I, I recognize one of those voices. That's, that's Julia who came to teach my nieces. And she just <laughs> got this beautiful smile on her face. And, and uh, you know, shortly after that, she collapsed and died. Uh, it turned out that a couple of days later, they received word from England, from, from London, that this girl, Julia, had died the day before this woman had her vision of her. Um, and there's no way she could have known about that. Yeah. And didn't she, wasn't she singing when she died? Yes, Something yes. Something like that? Yeah. She, she was sick and she sang the whole day. That's right. That's an unusual thing, too. I yes, guess that's yes. what gave her the most joy. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty amazing. This, to me, should be enough evidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, what do you, so in your research, I mean, it, it's, I love the stories and it's great, but what does this give you for research? In your mm. research, what is the common, right. the common factors that you've seen? Yeah, well, we do look for what's common across cultures, across religious beliefs, see what factors are the same now as they were 2,000 years ago. And we find a number of phenomena that are typical of near-death experiences in a variety of situations. And one is that people tend to leave their bodies, as we were saying, mm -hmm. and they feel like they leave this realm and go to some other unearthly realm or dimension or reality. And when they do this, they feel like time seems to stop or slow down. Um, they feel like everything's happening all at once, or there's just there's no sense of time at all as, they, as we know it. They mm -hmm. say that the linear time we know is something that we manufacture here. It's not really um, in the other realm. This allows them to do um, many things that we think would be impossible. And in fact, when people tell you their near-death experience, it may take hours to tell about it when it happened in a matter of seconds. Mm. Yeah. Wow. People often review their lives in a near-death experience in great detail, and they come back with a sense of well-being and peace and well-being that what happened on the other side, no matter how they describe it, was not something to be afraid of. There were feelings of peace, of bliss and joy. They feel greeted by a loving being of light and unconditionally loved. And you feel like that is a sense of, of going home to their real true home. Mm -hmm. And they come back without fearing death and feeling like they have uh, better self-esteem now because they feel like they are valued um, and uh, 
It just becomes a different way of life for them. That changes the way they, they come back. And and they're no longer afraid of life or making mistakes or exactly. it's just the, an experience. You know, you know when, I, when I first heard that they lose their fear of death, I wondered if that would be, make people more suicidal. Uh, because <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I knew people who were thinking about suicide, but were deterred by fear of what would happen. Mm-hmm. So I asked near-death experiences about that. And they said, no, no. When you lose your fear of death, you also lose your fear of life. Life becomes more vibrant, more alive. You're not afraid of losing it. So you tend to jump in with both feet, live more fully in the present, and life becomes much more meaningful and enjoyable and fulfilling than it had been before. Is there any way we can recreate this without dying? <laughs> um, well, can some of the research now with LSD or hallucinogens or, you know, uh, psilocybin, is there any way we can come close to this even? Well, well, there may be. There may be. People have been trying for a long time to replicate this type of thing with different spiritual traditions, uh, fasting and so forth, and, and psychedelic tri- uh, drugs mm-hmm. um, and more recently with, with hypnosis and guided meditation. And they all produce some aspects of the near-death experience. Um, I don't know that they do it completely. You know, part of the near-death experience is you're totally out of control. And that's part of the, I think, the therapeutic effect. You find yourself in this other realm, not being able to control anything, and you feel better than ever. So you realize this ego control we have here, we're so desperate to hold on to, means nothing. And we're better off without it. Whereas if you're trying to achieve the, the experience with drugs or something else, you're not letting go completely. You're still in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't become the whole experience for you. Do you think we really can let control let go of control completely here? Do people Probably actually, not. Probably oh, not okay. during, during our life. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah. that's a long way from where I yes, am. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about uh, somebody who committed suicide or, or, you know, that's how they passed over and, and came right. back. But um, it was a suicide. How was how that received? Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've talked to a number of people who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And they were generally the same type as people who have uh, near-death experiences from other things as well. Uh, they are not unpleasant. They're, they tend to be blissful. There certainly are some unpleasant near-death experiences, uh, not very many. Most people who study this think it's between 1% and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant. And we don't know why that is. They don't seem to be people who led bad lives, quote, bad lives. Uh, people who lead saintly lives often have unpleasant experiences. And I've talked to people who were um, in prison for life who had near-death experiences because of a heart attack in prison, and they had blissful experiences. So mm-hmm. how you lead your life does not have anything to do with whether you can have a good or a bad near-death experience. So, so those, which is frightening, those, um, the ones that are not pleasant. Yes. Um, you, you don't really go into that that much in your book, but can you talk about one of those? Right, right. Well, they, the most common type, there are different types, but the most common type sounds just like a blissful NDE, but people experience it in a terrified way. Uh, for example, they may find themselves being ripped out of their bodies and thrust down a tunnel really fast and faced with a blinding light, and they're terrified of it, and they try to stop it. And they fight against it and fight against it, and it's very unpleasant. And at some point, they get exhausted, and they give up fighting and just surrender. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes blissful again for them. 
Mm-hmm. So it's as if what's unpleasant is not the experience itself, but their resistance to it. Their okay. need to be in control that's caused them all the pain. So it is when once they accept. Yes, then it uh, becomes a pleasant experience for them. Right. All right, I'm going to break right now. Um, we've just been listening about a lot of near-death experiences, and we're going to come back and see what do we learn from them and what does it mean for the rest of us. Um, so I'll be right back with Dr. Bruce Grayson, and we'll take a break now. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. One thing's for certain. Life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What's the difference between leaders who achieve exceptional results with ease and those who struggle to keep up? Tune in for Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. You'll discover the simple practices that are making the biggest difference to a leader's success today. You'll meet leaders who are bringing out the best in their teams. You'll gain practical strategies to lead yourself and others to high performance with ease. Leading on Purpose airs live Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Barb Crowley. We're back with Dr. Bruce Grayson, and uh, who has just written the book after. It actually just came out in March, I believe, talking about, and he's an expert on near-death experiences, and he has been giving us examples and talking about near-death experiences and what's in common and what's gone on on the other side. Now we're going to talk about um, more of what we can learn from this mm-hmm. or, or what, we, what Bruce has learned from this and can share with the rest of us. So, if, you know, Bruce has somebody in mind that came back and told of, of some experiences right. which were a, a real review of their lives, which I find frightening. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> not that I've done anything horrible, but I don't want to be reporting everything. Right, right. <laughs> so you had somebody in mind there. That right. This, this is a fellow who had a near-death experience in his 30s when he was working under a truck and it fell and came down on his chest and crushed his chest. And he had a very elaborate near-death experience with a sense of life review, which he remembered every detail of his life. And what surprised him most, um, in addition to being able to remember things he hadn't thought about in, in years, was that he re-experienced these things, not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of other people who were involved in the incidents. An example was, he remembered when he was a teenager, driving his truck down the street in town, and a drunk man ran out in front of his truck. Well, he stopped the truck and he was furious because he almost dented the truck. Uh, so he rolled down the, the window and started yelling at the man. And the man, being intoxicated, reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. Well, that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man mercilessly and left him a bloody mess on the median strip and then got in his truck and drove away. But when he had the near-death experience and his life review, he went through that whole thing again, not only through his own eyes, but also through the eyes of the drunk man. So he saw him, he felt himself, the rage and the adrenaline rush, but at the same time, he was feeling the man's humiliation about being beaten up by this kid. He felt the man's, um, he said, the 32 blows of my fists on his face. He said, I felt hit my nose getting bloodier. I felt my teeth going through my lower lip and he felt everything this man was feeling. And when he came back from the near-death experience, he said he was really stunned by this. And he said, we're all part of this together. We're all the same. And there's, he says, it's like, like a hand. If you look at your, your five fingers, they look like they're separate things. If you look at the whole hand, you see they're all connected at the palm. Mm -hmm. And you can't do something to one finger without affecting the others. He said, that's the way it is with all of us, that we're all interconnected. And when you hurt someone else, you automatically hurt yourself. And when you help other people, you're helping yourself. And he said, this is basically the golden rule, which is a part of every religion. But he said, for us now, it's no longer a guideline to be followed, but a law of nature, like gravity. You can't avoid it, that we are interconnected. We are all the same thing. So you come back from this feeling very differently about other people, that you see yourself in them, you see the divinity in all of us. Mm -hmm. And it becomes very hard to hurt other people then after that. You become much more altruistic, uh, much more compassionate, much more comparing. About, I'm sorry, much more caring about people. And this changes how you lead your life. Um, you know, and often, people have to change their careers as a result of this. I knew another fellow who was a, a career a Marine. He was a sergeant leaving his troops in Vietnam. And he was shot in the chest and had shrapnel throughout his, his lungs. And he had to be air evac to the Philippines to a military hospital. And during an operation there, he had a near-death experience, a beautiful one. And when he came back, he had the same feeling that we're all part of the same thing. You can't hurt someone else without hurting yourself. And he realized when he was sent back into the jungle, he couldn't shoot his gun. He couldn't shoot his, somebody else. So he had to leave the Marines, which had been his lifelong career, and came back to the States and ended up training to be a, uh, a medical technician. And I've talked to other people who were police officers who couldn't go back to that job, 
or who were cutthroat businessmen who couldn't stand the idea of getting ahead of someone else's expense because we're all in this together. And it really changes how people lead their lives. How have we gotten so far away from that? There's a little uh-huh. question from left field. Yeah. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But how have well, we gotten so far away? We have gotten into a very materialistic mindset where the only thing that matters is getting ahead. And, um, you know, we need a really a course correction. And that's what religions have been telling us for centuries now. It's not all about this world. It's about the other world as well. Mm-hmm. It's, we are all... I think you used the word in your book, we're all chasing something. Or right. actually, you interviewed somebody who, yes. Dr. Moody, I believe, yes. Yes. said yes. that we're all chasing something. Yeah. yeah, And that when people have come back, they're not chasing. Right, right. Many near-death experiencers use the analogy of a wave in the ocean, and they say they've learned that we are like waves in the ocean. You're distinct from the ocean because you're a separate wave but only for a short period of time. And then you dissolve back into the ocean, which we're all a part of. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the truth. I look at waves with the next generation went down and I'm the next wave in line. Yes, right. <laughs> you right. know, that's where I say it. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> um, so um, how, how do they deal in a materialistic world People who come back, how can they survive right. in this world? It can be, it can be very difficult. You know? uh, and often they find that their families and friends don't welcome these changes in them. They come back with drastically different attitudes, beliefs, values. Uh, they no longer value really things of this world, material possessions, power, prestige, fame, competition. But they're most more interested in relationships, in um, you know, being kind to other people. Um, you know, they go through the life review and they see what they've done in their lives and they judge themselves, what things were good, what things were not so good. They almost never say that they were judged by someone else, by a God or by something else. They say it's also their own judgment of themselves. And they come back realizing the mistakes they've made. They don't use the word sin. They just say, I've made mistakes that I need to now change my life and do it better. Um, so, you know, if, if family and friends don't go along with that, that can be a big problem. Um, and sometimes people end up getting divorced as a result of this. And as I mentioned, careers change because of this, because you can't fit your new lifestyle, your new attitudes and values into your old lifestyle. And that can be very traumatic for a lot of people. Especially if you are wealthy and your family right. likes being wealthy. Exactly. And you're exactly. giving your money away. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I would think that would be a problem. Yeah. But um, do they come back once they've reviewed their lives and they're unhappy with parts of it or whatever? Mm-hmm. Is there guilt or self-hate from um, being there, not the person they wish they were? Yeah, there, there is some feeling of guilt about not having been a better person. There's not self-hate, though, because they've also experienced this life review through the eyes of something beyond themselves, like a, a, a God consciousness. And in that concept, they're forgiven for everything. You know, nothing, nothing is a permanent sin. You're accepted of your good and your bad. Um, and they come back with that attitude that I am a worthwhile person no matter what I've done in my life. Um, and, you know, God loves me despite what I've been, what I've done. And I came back wanting to do better. The ones that want to stay um, mm. and then, you know, are sent back. Right. 
do they feel rejected by God? Well, sometimes they do. Uh, sometimes they feel very angry at the doctors for bringing them back. Mm-hmm. And they often feel sad about being back here. Um, and that can create problems for them as well. Uh, that doesn't last for long, though. Uh, they often come to some terms with, I'm back here for a reason. I was sent back for a reason. I need to figure out what that was and, and work to achieve that. Um, I found that the best way to help people deal with these feelings of anger and sadness of being back was to let them talk with other near-death experiencers who have also been through the same process. And they can help each other out with this, like a group of alcoholics would um, help each other out. Mm-hmm. How about the people who have gone through the terror aspect of it before they accepted? They come back before mm-hmm. they accepted. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, surprisingly, they have a lot of the same positive after effects as people who have blissful experiences. Um, they tend to be coming back thinking, uh, well, my experience this time was not pleasant, but I know that there is more than this life. And I have a chance now because I've been sent back to reform my life and do things better now and hope for a better outcome next time. So they come back with this sense that, that what happens after death does not have to be frightening and that you know, we can have a, a better life after this one. I'm going to ask you something a little bit maybe out of your scope, but or is that feeling of connectedness, does that include like rocks and trees and everything or just actually, people? Actually, Barbara does. Uh, Good. <laughs> um, they often feel like they, they've been able to, in their near-death experience, um, merge with other things in the environment. And sometimes those are inanimate objects like rocks and feel what it's like to be that rock. And they come back thinking, we're all connected not only with other people, but with all of nature. And they have a reference for nature they didn't have before. So they're now tiptoeing around the grass, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, do people in their lives, I know the, the negative reaction of, you know, well, we were wealthy and we want to be wealthy. Right. How about the positive reaction of people around them that maybe they changed their lives as well, having heard this? Right. Well, that's true. We, we, we looked at this and, and people who are um, in, the, in the near-death experiences life often absorb some of the same lessons, the same attitudes and value changes the near-death experiencer did. Um, there was actually a, a several studies done of college students who were taught a class in near-death experiences. And they did before and after tests of these kids, and they were much more altruistic and much more compassionate after the experience was over, after the course was over. And they tested them again a year and two years later, and they retained these changes. They were much more compassionate and caring after having learned about near-death experiences. There's a class in near-death experience. <laughs> there, yes, there are. It's in several colleges now. Wow, I'm so glad to hear that. Then yeah. it is fully accepted. It's or gradually being taught in, in nursing schools and occasionally in oh, medical that's schools. Great. That's yeah. great. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't draw people to in their life. It doesn't, um, you know, increase suicide attempts. No, it does not. It does not. <clears throat> Yeah. Right. How do you, do you work then with end of life people who are frightened who are? I do. I do. With people who are dealing with death in a variety of ways, either facing their own death mm-hmm. or facing the death of a loved one. And they often uh, come to me to, to 
learn what they can about near-death experiences and what they say about uh, death and about what happens after death. How has it changed your life? Well, as I said before, I started off in a very materialistic mindset. Mm-hmm. And I continued to have that for a long time until I finally gave it up and said, this isn't going to work. That yeah. There's no way the material mindset can explain what's going on here. There has to be more than that. Um, so I kind of accept the material mindset as being a very limited uh, example of what our life is part, is part of. Um, the old Newtonian mechanics works fine for everyday life, but it doesn't work well for uh, very fast speeds or very small particles. And in the same way, the materialistic mindset works well for our everyday life, but not for things that happen in the extreme cases like near-death experiences. Um, just can't explain those things. So I realized that there's more going on to us than just our physical bodies. We're a lot more than that. And in fact, our physical body is not the most important part of us. There's something much more important going on. I don't understand it. And that's made me much more comfortable with not understanding things, with not having to have the answer to everything. Because I do believe now, as a result of these near-death experiences, that the universe is basically a friendly place. And what's going to happen to us after death is not something to be afraid of. Has that made you more religious or, or it's not really a religious thing? It's a different thing. Yeah, it's not really religious. In fact, people who have near-death experiences say they're more spiritual, but they're not more religious. They find themselves equally at home in any house of worship or in nature. And they don't need the, the dogma and the ritual of their religion to make them feel connected to God. Um, that's something that's intrinsic to you. It doesn't have to be have, have external validation for it. You also have checked people years after their experience. Right, right. So their, their experience was very fresh. You talked to them then, but how was it years later? Right. Well, because I've been doing this for so many decades, I can go back and talk to people that I've talked with 30, 40 years ago. And I find that their experience, the way they describe it, is identical to what they told me originally. Not only that, but the after effects that they report are just as strong now as they were 30, 40 years ago. So that doesn't change over time. And that's pretty unusual because our memories of everything else changes. <laughs> exactly. Particularly memories of changes of, of events that happen in traumatic circumstances, like a near-death event. They, they are very prone to being distorted over time. But the near-death experience is not something that changes over time. And it's very clear. That's one thing that you talked about yes, in your book, yes. that it's, it's very, very clear. Right. Right. They talk about it being hyper-real, more real than this world is, and it's very vivid in their memories. So it brings us to what is reality. Exactly. The big question. Yes. <laughs> what is reality? Yeah. Have you thought yeah. that's reality and this is not? Well, that's what near-death experiences say, that uh, you know, this physical world is just a tiny part of what's reality. Mm. So why do we do this? <laughs> I want to I want to bring in though uh, right now some of the University of Virginia. I'm just fascinated by this sure. that a university um, has actually has a division that studies this and is um, bankrolled to do this research, and it is not going to change. It's not like well, if you don't bring me the right results, you're out. I mean, right. right. Staying in place. And it's right. called the Division of Perceptual Studies. Studies right. The University of uh, Virginia DOPS, you all call right, it. Right. 
um, highly productive research group devoted to the investigation of phenomena that challenge mainstream scientific paradigms regarding the nature of the mind-brain relationship. I like that, not mind-body, but mind-brain. Researchers here, you're being one, um, are focused on studying phenomena related to consciousness functioning beyond the confines of the physical body, a phenomena that suggests continuation of uh, consciousness after physical death. And Jim Tucker, who's one of your colleagues there, has done reincarnation. Right. And you guys work very closely. Yes, yes. Um, So I was wondering if we could get into that a little bit. We have a few more minutes. Sure, sure. If you'd go ahead and tell us about his research as well. Well, this this group was was, um, founded originally by uh, Chester Carlson, who invented the Xerox machine. Mm-hmm. And late in his life, he decided to um, pursue this research. So he, he funded um, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was then chairman of psychiatry at University of Virginia, to study young children who claim to remember past lives. So Ian did this. Um, and Chester Carlson uh, gave him a, f- a little money, bit of money every year to study these, these things. And then when Carlson died in 1968, in his will, he left a large sum of money to the university to fund this division. So Ian stepped down as chairman of the department to run this division. And that was uh, about 50 years ago. Um, We study a variety of things that challenge the the mind-brain idea that that the mind is just what the brain does. And that kind of suggests that the mind is something separate from the brain. And these often relate to phenomena that suggest we survive bodily death. And as I mentioned, Ian started looking at young children, two, three, four years old, who talked about a past life where we could actually verify what they were saying was accurate. It also includes um, out-of-body experiences, mediumship, near-death experiences, uh, things that are uh, suggest mind-body separation like telepathy and clairvoyance. And now we have a well-established neuroimaging laboratory where we can study what's going on in the brains of people while they're having these experiences. Um, Ian himself went to the places where these children were most common, which is cultures where there's a belief in reincarnation, such as the Hindu and Buddhist cultures of Asia and some others. Uh, Jim Tucker, who has now succeeded him in this work, focuses on American cases, which are harder to find, but much more impressive because there's no cultural contamination of their beliefs. Americans don't generally believe in this. He's documented (laughs) some very impressive cases of children uh, who, you know, preschool children, who document um, details of a past life that can then be corroborated. I, I remember reading that they're able to pick out their neighborhood and their house right, and, right. and all of those things that they've left. But yes. how do they, uh, well, I guess it's just they accept it, but how do they explain that they used to live in California and now they live in New York with a whole just, different group of people? They just accept it that this is, you know, I live there and now I live here. Um, wow. and sometimes they're very upset about being here and not being with their original family. Um, interestingly, say, though, yeah. interesting though, it, it all kind of starts to fade when they get into school age mm-hmm. and the memories fade and the, the longing to be in the other life fade. And um, by the time they're, they're, say, eight, 10 years old, many of them have forgotten the past life memories. Wow. Um, in most cultures, there is a ceremony around seven. 
that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I've seen it in Catholic, that kind of thing, but in a lot of other cultures, and it seems to be a a point where the curtain gets pulled. Yes. You don't get to see anymore um, those other. um, Did the kids tell you why we're doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Not really. Too bad. (laughs) Yeah. But they, you are able to document to actually yes, say yes. there is what I would consider scientific hard evidence then to reincarnation. Yeah, I, as a scientist, I can distinguish between evidence and proof. It's definitely mm-hmm. evidence that points us in that direction, but it's not absolute proof that closes the case. What would constitute proof in this? That's a great question. I don't think scientists can ever settle on proof because there's always more information we don't know. Learn. So there may be other interpretations that we're not aware of yet that may explain the same facts. Will we ever bring it into our culture through the scientific community, do you think? Well, I'm an optimist. I think we will. I think you that are an optimist. science <laughs> Yes. Well yes. science and spirituality are different ways of looking at the world and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And they each give a different picture of what's going on with us, and neither one by itself gives a complete picture. You need both to understand what's really going on with us and with the world around us. Science in the past has always kept it very, very separate. Or in right. maybe in our culture, we've kept it very separate. And it's been a hard wall there that right. wasn't allowed right. to be passed. And right. we that, are now dancing with that. Right. Well, that was actually started by the church, actually, who, who didn't want science uh, challenging their beliefs. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And that's what set it up originally. And science just accepted that and said, okay, we got the body, you got the spirit. You know, that's yeah. the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now we're seeing that yet neither one alone, we're both body and spirit. And you can't understand one without understanding the other. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is complementary. One can't live without the other. Right. Exactly. It looks like, yeah. Um, we're coming to the close. And I really, uh, you know, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> But I also want everybody to know that they can reach you and see where you're going to be and uh, what groups you're going to be speaking in um, by going to your website. Which That's is, right. And is that Bruce Grayson or Dr. Bruce Grayson? No, it's just BruceGrayson.com. And that's Grayson with an E. Okay. That's that's good that you pointed right. that out. And um, also, you have a number of symposiums and um Thing events coming up. I know one's in Vail that you'll be doing. Yeah. yeah. Um. You want to talk a little bit about that? We've got about thirty seconds. <laughs> well, no, I I can't list them all. There's just too many of them. But they're usually listed on my website or mm-hmm. on the website of of um, the Division of Perceptual Studies, which is uh, UVA uh, dops dot dot org. Fascinating division. Fascinating. Thank you. Um. Also. Um. Your book is out now and yes, it can is. be bought pretty well everywhere. It's a fascinating yes. read. Everybody should read it and remember kindness because you're going to you be bet. explaining yourself. Yeah, that's right. You have to live yeah. with it. Right. Right, right. You don't want to be over there saying what a schmuck you were. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, remember kindness. And thank you so much for being here. I've really appreciated it. It's been fascinating. Well, and, thank you, Barb. Uh, I hope that we can. Keep in touch, and you can tell me more. Great. (laughs) Thank you so much.
Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.